Section 21 of the Columbia Accident Investigation Board Final Report, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Patrick McAfee, Chicago, USA. The Columbia Accident Investigation Board Final Report, Volume 1, by the Columbia Accident Investigation Board. Chapter 6A, Decision Making at NASA, Part 1. Chapter 6, Decision Making at NASA. The dwindling post-Cold War shuttle budget that launched NASA leadership on a crusade for efficiency in the decade before Columbia's final flight powerfully shaped the environment in which shuttle managers worked. The increased organizational complexity, transitioning authority structures, and ambiguous working relationships that defined the restructured space shuttle program in the 1990s created turbulence that repeatedly influenced decisions made before and during STS-107. This chapter connects Chapter 5's analysis of NASA's broader policy environment to a focused scrutiny of space shuttle program decisions that led to the STS-107 accident. Section 6.1 illustrates how foam debris losses that violated design requirements came to be defined by NASA management as an acceptable aspect of shuttle missions, one that posed merely a maintenance turnaround problem rather than a safety of flight concern. Section 6.2 shows how, at a pivotal juncture just months before the Columbia accident, the management goal of completing Node 2 of the International Space Station on time encouraged shuttle managers to continue flying, even after a significant bipod foam debris strike on STS-112. Section 6.3 notes the decisions made during STS-107 in response to the bipod foam strike and reveals how engineers' concerns about risk and safety were competing with and were defeated by management's belief that foam could not hurt the orbiter as well as the need to keep on schedule. In relating a rescue and repair scenario that might have enabled the crew's safe return, Section 6.4 grapples with yet another latent assumption held by shuttle managers during and after STS-107, that even if the foam strike had been discovered, nothing could have been done. 6.1. A History of Foam Anomalies the shedding of external tank foam, the physical cause of the Columbia accident, had a long history. Damage caused by debris has occurred on every space shuttle flight, and most missions have had insulating foam shed during ascent. This raises an obvious question. Why did NASA continue flying the shuttle with a known problem that violated design requirements? It would seem that the longer the shuttle program allowed debris to continue striking the orbiters, the more opportunity existed to detect the serious threat it posed. But this is not what happened. Although engineers have made numerous changes in foam design and application in the 25 years that the external tank has been in production, 
the problem of foam shedding has not been solved, nor has the orbiter's ability to tolerate impacts from foam or other debris been significantly improved. The need for foam insulation. The external tank contains liquid oxygen and hydrogen propellants stored at minus 297 and minus 423 degrees Fahrenheit. Were the super cold external tank not sufficiently insulated from the warm air, its liquid propellants would boil and atmospheric nitrogen and water vapor would condense and form thick layers of ice on its surface. Upon launch, the ice could break off and damage the orbiter. See Chapter 3. To prevent this from happening, large areas of the external tank are machine sprayed with one or two inches of foam, while specific fixtures, such as the bipod ramps, are hand sculpted with thicker coats. Most of these insulating materials fall into a general category of foam and are outwardly similar to hardware store sprayable foam insulation. The problem is that foam does not always stay where the external tank manufacturer, Lockheed Martin, installs it. During flight, popcorn to briefcase sized chunks detach from the external tank. Original Design Requirements Early in the space shuttle program, foam loss was considered a dangerous problem. Design engineers were extremely concerned about potential damage to the orbiter and its fragile thermal protection system, parts of which are so vulnerable to impacts that lightly pressing a thumbnail into them leaves a mark. Because of these concerns, the baseline design requirements in the shuttle's flight and ground system specification, Book 1, requirements precluded foam shedding by the external tank, specifically 3.2.1.2.14, debris prevention. The space shuttle system, including the ground systems, shall be designed to preclude the shedding of ice and or other debris from the shuttle elements during pre-launch and flight operations that would jeopardize the flight crew, vehicle, mission success, or would adversely impact turnaround operations. 3.2.1.1.17 External Tank Debris Limits No debris shall emanate from the critical zone of the external tank on the launch pad or during ascent except for such material which may result from normal thermal protection system recession due to ascent heating. The assumption that only tiny pieces of debris would strike the orbiter was also built into original design requirements, which specified that the thermal protection system, the tiles and reinforced carbon-carbon, or RCC, panels, would be built to withstand impacts with a kinetic energy less than 0.006 foot-pounds. Such a small tolerance leaves the orbiter vulnerable to strikes from birds, ice, launch pad debris, and pieces of foam. Despite the design requirements that the external tank shed no debris and that the orbiter not be subjected to any significant debris hits, Columbia sustained damage from debris strikes on its inaugural 1981 flight. More than 300 tiles had to be replaced. 
engineers stated that they had known in advance that the external tank was going to produce the debris shower that occurred during launch. They would have had a difficult time clearing Columbia for flight. Discussion of foam strikes prior to the Rogers Commission. Foam strikes were a topic of management concern at the time of the Challenger accident. In fact, during the Rogers Commission accident investigation, shuttle program manager Arnold Aldrich cited a contractor's concerns about foam shedding to illustrate how well the shuttle program manages risk. Quote, On a series of four or five external tanks, the thermal insulation around the inner tank had large divots of insulation coming off and impacting the orbiter. We found significant amount of damage to one orbiter after a flight, and on the subsequent flight, we had a camera in the equivalent of the wheel well, which took a picture of the tank after separation, and we determined that this was in fact the cause of the damage. At that time, we wanted to be able to proceed with the launch program if it was acceptable. So we undertook discussions of what would be acceptable in terms of potential field repairs. And during those discussions, Rockwell was very conservative because, rightly, damage to the orbiter TPS, thermal protection system, is damage to the orbiter system. And it has a very stringent environment to experience during the re-entry phase. Aldrich described the pieces of foam as half a foot square or a foot by half a foot, and some of them much smaller and localized to a specific area, but fairly high up on the tank. So they had a good shot at the orbiter underbelly, and this is where we had the damage. Continuing Foam Loss Despite the high level of concern after STS-1, and through the Challenger accident, foam continued to separate from the external tank. Photographic evidence of foam shedding exists for 65 of the 79 missions for which imagery is available. Of the 34 missions for which there are no imagery, eight missions where foam loss is not seen in the imagery, and six missions where imagery is inconclusive Foam loss can be inferred from the number of divots on the orbiter's lower surfaces. Over the life of the Space Shuttle program, orbiters have returned with an average of 143 divots in the upper and lower surfaces of the thermal protection system tiles, with 31 divots averaging over an inch in one dimension. The orbiter's lower surfaces have an average of 101 hits 23 of which are larger than an inch in diameter. Though the orbiter is also struck by ice and pieces of launch pad hardware during launch, by micrometeoroids and orbital debris in space, and by runway debris during landing, the board concludes that foam is likely responsible for most debris hits. With each successful landing, it appears that NASA engineers and managers increasingly regarded the foam shedding as inevitable and as either unlikely to jeopardize safety or simply an acceptable risk. 
The distinction between foam loss and debris events also appears to have become blurred. NASA and contractor personnel came to view foam strikes not as a safety of flight issue, but rather a simple maintenance or turnaround issue. In flight readiness review documentation, mission management team minutes, in-flight anomaly disposition reports, and elsewhere, what was considered a serious threat to the orbiter came to be treated as in-family. A reportable problem that was within the known experience base was believed to be understood and was not regarded as a safety of flight issue. Bipod ramp foam loss events. Chunks of foam from the external tank's forward bipod attachment, which connects the orbiter to the external tank, are some of the largest pieces of debris that have struck the orbiter. To place the foam loss from STS-107 in a broader context, the board examined every known instance of foam shedding from this area. Foam loss from the left bipod ramp, called the Y-ramp in NASA parlance, has been confirmed by imagery on seven of the 113 missions flown. However, only on 72 of these missions was available imagery of sufficient quality to determine left bipod ramp foam loss. Therefore, foam loss from the left bipod area occurred on approximately 10% of flights, seven events out of 72 imaged flights. On the 66 flights that imagery was available for the right bipod area, foam loss was never observed. NASA could not explain why the only left bipod experienced foam loss. See figure 6.1-1. The first known bipod ramp foam loss occurred during STS-7, Challenger's second mission. See figure 6.1-2. Images taken after external tank separation revealed that a 19 by 12 inch piece of the left bipod ramp was missing and that the external tank had some 25 shallow divots in the foam just forward of the bipod struts and another 40 divots in the foam covering the lower external tank. After the mission was completed, the Program Requirements Control Board cited the foam loss as an in-flight anomaly. Citing an event as an in-flight anomaly means that before the next launch, a specific NASA organization must resolve the problem or prove that it does not threaten the safety of the vehicle or crew. At the Flight Readiness Review for the next mission, Orbiter Project Management reported that, based on the completion of repairs to the Orbiter Thermal Protection System, the bipod ramp foam loss in-flight anomaly was resolved, or closed. However, although the closure documents detailed the repairs made to the orbiter, neither the Certificate of Flight Readiness documentation nor the Flight Readiness Review documentation referenced correcting the cause of the damage, the shedding of foam. The second bipod ramp foam loss occurred during STS 32R, Columbia's ninth flight on January 9, 1990. 
A post-mission review of STS-32R photography revealed five divots in the intertank foam ranging from 6 to 28 inches in diameter, the largest of which extended into the left bipod ramp foam. A post-mission inspection of the lower surface of the orbiter revealed 111 hits, 13 of which were one inch or greater in one dimension. An in-flight anomaly assigned to the external tank project was closed out at the flight readiness review for the next mission, STS-36, on the basis that there may have been local voids in the foam bipod ramp where it attached to the metal skin of the external tank. To address the foam loss, NASA engineers poked small vent holes through the inner tank foam to allow trapped gases to escape voids in the foam where they otherwise might build up pressure and cause the foam to pop off. However, NASA is still studying this hypothesized mechanism of foam loss. Experiments conducted under the board's purview indicate that other mechanisms may be at work. See foam fracture under hydrostatic pressure in Chapter 3. As discussed in Chapter 3, the board notes that the persistent uncertainty about the causes of foam loss and potential orbiter damage results from a lack of thorough hazard analysis and engineering attention. The third bipod foam loss occurred on January 25, 1992, during the launch of Columbia on STS-50, when an approximately 26 by 10 inch piece separated from the left bipod ramp area. Post-mission inspection revealed a 9 inch by 4.5 inch by 0.5 inch divot in the tile the largest area of tile damage in shuttle history. The external tank project at Marshall Space Flight Center and the integration office at Johnson Space Center cited separate in-flight anomalies. The integration office closed out its in-flight anomaly two days before the next flight, STS-46, by deeming damage to the thermal protection system and accepted flight risk. In Integration Hazard Report 37, the Integration Office noted that impact damage was shallow, the tile loss was not a result of excessive aerodynamic loads, and the external tank thermal protection system failure was the result of inadequate venting. The external tank project closed out its in-flight anomaly with the rationale that foam loss during ascent was not considered a flight or safety issue. Note the difference in how the EACH program addressed the foam shedding problem. While the integration office deemed it an accepted risk, the external tank project considered it not a safety of flight issue. Hazard Report 37 would figure in the STS-113 Flight Readiness Review, where the crucial decision was made to continue flying with the foam loss problem. This inconsistency would reappear 10 years later 
after bipod foam shedding during STS-112. The fourth and fifth bipod ramp foam loss events went undetected until the board directed NASA to review all available imagery for other instances of bipod foam shedding. This review of imagery from tracking cameras, the umbilical well camera, and video and still images from flight crew handheld cameras revealed bipod foam loss on STS-52 and STS-62, both of which were flown by Columbia. STS-52 launched on October 22, 1992, lost an 8 by 4 inch corner of the left bipod ramp as well as portions of foam covering the left jack pad, a piece of external tank hardware that facilitates the orbiter attachment process. The STS-52 post-mission inspection noted a higher than average 290 hits on upper and lower thermal protection system tiles, 16 of which were greater than one inch in one dimension. External tank separation videos of STS-62 launched on March 4, 1994 revealed that a 1 by 3 inch piece of foam in the rear face of the left bipod ramp was missing, as were small pieces of foam around the bipod ramp. Because these incidents of missing bipod foam were not detected until after the STS-107 accident, no in-flight anomalies had been written. The board concludes that NASA's failure to identify these bipod foam losses at the time they occurred means the agency must examine the adequacy of its film review, post-flight inspection, and program requirements control board processes. The sixth and final bipod ramp event before STS-107 occurred during STS-112 on October 7, 2002. See figure 6.1-3. At 33 seconds after launch, when Atlantis was at 12,500 feet and traveling at Mach 0.75, Ground cameras observed an object traveling from the external tank that subsequently impacted the solid rocket booster external tank attachment ring. After impact, the debris broke into multiple pieces that fell along the solid rocket booster exhaust plume. Post-mission inspection of the solid rocket booster confirmed damage to foam on the forward face of the external tank attachment ring. The impact was approximately four inches wide and three inches deep. Post-external tank separation photography by the crew showed that a four by five by 12 inch, 240 cubic inch corner section of the left bipod ramp was missing, which exposed the super lightweight ablator coating on the bipod housing. This missing chunk of foam was believed to be the debris that impacted the external tank attachment ring during ascent. The post-launch review 
of photos and video identified these debris events, but the mission evaluation room logs and mission management team minutes do not reflect any discussions of them. Umbilical cameras and the statistics of bipod ramp loss. Over the course of the 113 space shuttle missions, the left bipod ramp has shed significant pieces of foam at least seven times. Foam shedding from the right bipod ramp has never been confirmed. The right bipod ramp may be less subject to foam shedding because it is partially shielded from aerodynamic forces by the external tank's liquid oxygen line. The fact that five of these left bipod shedding events occurred on missions flown by Columbia sparked considerable board debate. Although initially this appeared to be an improbable coincidence that would have caused the board to fault NASA for improper trend analysis and lack of engineering curiosity, on closer inspection, the board concluded that this coincidence is probably the result of a bias in the sample of known bipod foam shedding. Before the Challenger accident, only Challenger and Columbia carried umbilical well cameras that imaged the external tank after separation, so there are more images of Columbia than of the other orbiters. The bipod was imaged 26 of 28 of Columbia's missions. In contrast, Challenger had 7 of 10, Discovery had only 14 of 30, Atlantis only 14 of 26, and Endeavor 12 of 19. STS-113 Flight Readiness Review A Pivotal Decision because the bipod ramp shedding on STS-112 was significant, both in size and in the damage it caused, and because it occurred only two flights before STS-107, the board investigated NASA's rationale to continue flying. This decision made by the Program Requirements Control Board at the STS-113 Flight Readiness Review is among those most directly linked to the STS-107 accident. Had the foam loss during STS-112 been classified as a more serious threat, managers might have responded differently when they heard about the foam strike on STS-107. Alternately, in the face of the increased risk, STS-107 might not have flown at all. However, at STS-113's Flight Readiness Review, managers formally accepted a flight rationale that stated it was safe to fly with foam losses. This decision enabled, and perhaps even encouraged, mission management team members to use similar reasoning when evaluating whether the foam strike on STS-107 posed a safety-of-flight issue. At the Program Requirements Control Board meeting following the return of STS-112, the Intercenter Photo Working Group recommended that the loss of bipod foam be classified as an in-flight anomaly. 
In a meeting chaired by Shuttle Program Manager Ron Dittemore and attended by many of the managers who would be actively involved with STS-107, including Linda Hamm, the Program Requirements Control Board ultimately decided against such classification. Instead, after discussions with the Integration Office and the External Tank Project, the Program Requirements Control Board Chairman assigned an action to the external tank project to determine the root cause of the foam loss and to propose corrective action. This was inconsistent with previous practice in which all other known bipod foam shedding was designated as in-flight anomalies. The Program Requirements Control Board initially set December 5, 2002 as the date to report back on this action. Even though STS-113 was scheduled to launch on November 10th, the due date subsequently slipped until after the planned launch and return of STS-107. The Space Shuttle Program decided to fly not one but two missions before resolving the STS-112 foam loss. The board wondered why NASA would treat the STS-112 foam loss differently than all others. What drove managers to reject the recommendation that the foam loss be deemed an in-flight anomaly? Why did they take the unprecedented step of scheduling not one but eventually two missions to fly before the external tank project was to report back on foam losses? It seems that shuttle managers had become conditioned over time to not regard foam loss or debris as a safety of flight concern. As will be discussed in section 6.2, the need to adhere to the Node 2 launch schedule also appears to have influenced their decision. Had the STS-113 mission been delayed beyond early December 2002, the Expedition 5 crew on board the space station would have exceeded its 180-day on-orbit limit, and the Node 2 launch date, a major management goal, would not be met. Even though the results of the external tank project engineering analysis were not due until after STS-113, the foam shedding was reported or briefed at STS-113's Flight Readiness Review on October 31, 2002, a meeting that Dittemore and Ham attended. Two slides from this brief, figure 6.1-5, explain the disposition of bipod ramp foam loss on STS-112. This rationale is seriously flawed. The first and third statements listed under Rationale for Flight are incorrect. Contrary to the chart, which was presented by Jerry Smelser, the program manager for the external tank project, the bipod ramp design had changed as of external tank 76. This casts doubt on the implied argument that because the design had not changed, 
future bipod foam events were unlikely to occur. Although the other points may be factually correct, they provide an exceptionally weak rationale for safe flight. The fact that ramp closeout work was performed by experienced practitioners or that application involves craftsmanship in the use of validated application processes in no way decreases the chances of recurrent foam loss. The statement that the probability of loss of ramp thermal protection system is no higher, no lower than previous flights could be just as accurately stated. The probability of bipod foam loss on the next flight is just as high as it was on previous flights. With no engineering analysis, shuttle managers used past success as a justification for future flights and made no change to the external tank configurations planned for STS-113 and subsequently for STS-107. Along with this chart, the NASA Headquarters Safety Office presented a report that estimated a 99% probability of foam not being shed from the same area, even though no corrective action had been taken following the STS-112 foam shedding. The ostensible justification for the 99% figure was a calculation of the actual rate of bipod loss over 61 flights. This calculation was a sleight-of-hand effort to make the probability of bipod foam loss appear low rather than a serious grappling with the probability of bipod ramp foam separating. For one thing, the calculation equates the probability of left and right bipod loss when right bipod loss has never been observed and the amount of imagery available for left and right bipod events differs. The calculation also miscounts the actual number of bipod ramp losses in two ways. First, by restricting the sample size to flights between STS-112 and the last known bipod ramp loss, it excludes known bipod ramp losses from STS-7, STS-32R, and STS-50. Second, by failing to project the statistical rate of bipod loss across the many missions for which no bipod imagery is available, the calculation assumes a what-you-don't-see-won't-hurt-you mentality, when in fact the reverse is true. When the statistical rate of bipod foam loss is projected across missions for which imagery is not available and the sample size is extended to include every mission from STS-1 on, the probability of bipod loss increases dramatically. The board's review after STS-107, which included the discovery of two additional bipod ramp losses, that NASA had not previously noted, concluded that bipod foam loss occurred on approximately 10% of all missions. During the brief at STS-113's Flight Readiness Review, 
the Associate Administrator for Safety and Mission Assurance, scrutinized the Integration Hazard Report 37 conclusion that debris shedding was an accepted risk as well as the external tank project's rationale for flight. After conferring STS-113 flight readiness review participants ultimately agreed that foam shedding should be characterized as an accepted risk rather than a not a safety of flight issue. Space Shuttle Program Management accepted this rationale and STS-113's Certificate of Flight Readiness was signed. The decision made at the STS-113 Flight Readiness Review seemingly acknowledged that the foam posed a threat to the orbiter, although the continuing disagreement over whether foam was not a safety of flight issue versus an accepted risk demonstrates how the two terms became blurred over time clouding the precise conditions under which an increase in risk would be permitted by shuttle program management. In retrospect, the bipod foam that caused a 4 by 3 inch gouge in the foam on one of Atlantis' solid rocket boosters just months before STS-107 was a strong signal of potential future damage that shuttle engineers ignored. Despite the significant bipod foam loss on STS-112, shuttle program engineers made no external tank configuration changes, no moves to reduce the risk of bipod ramp shedding or potential damage to the orbiter on either of the next two flights, STS-113 and STS-107, and did not update Integrated Hazard Report 37. The board notes that although there is a process for conducting hazard analyses when the system is designed and a process for reevaluating them when a design is changed or the component is replaced, no process addresses the need to update a hazard analysis when anomalies occur. A stronger integration office would likely have insisted that Integrated Hazard Analysis 37 be updated. In the course of that update, engineers would be forced to consider the cause of foam shedding and the effects of shedding on other shuttle elements, including the orbiter thermal protection system. STS-113 launched at night. And although it is occasionally possible to image the orbiter from light given off by the solid rocket motor plume, in this instance no imagery was obtained, and it is possible that foam could have been shed. The acceptance of the rationale to fly cleared the way for Columbia's launch and provided a method for mission managers to classify the STS-107 foam strike as a maintenance and turnaround concern rather than a safety of flight issue. It is significant that in retrospect, several NASA managers identified their acceptance of this flight rationale as a serious error. The foam loss issue was considered so insignificant by some shuttle program engineers and managers 
that the STS-107 flight readiness review documents include no discussion of the still unresolved STS-112 foam loss. According to program rules, this discussion was not a requirement because the STS-112 incident was only identified as an action, not an in-flight anomaly. However, because the action was still open and the date of its resolution had slipped, the board believes that shuttle program managers should have addressed it. Had the foam issue been discussed in STS-107 pre-launch meetings, mission managers may have been more sensitive to the foam shedding and may have taken more aggressive steps to determine the extent of the damage. The seventh and final known bipod ramp foam loss occurred on January 16, 2003, during the launch of Columbia on STS-107. After the Columbia bipod loss, the Program Requirements Control Board deemed the foam loss an in-flight anomaly to be dealt with by the external tank project. End of Chapter 6A Decision-Making at NASA, Part 1